Ooh, ooh, ooh. Here comes a far-out listener now, somebody who shouldn't really be listening to us by rights. How, and how's the reception? Because, as I say, you're miles out of our area. Well, I can only get you in the kitchen. Oh, so, so you, have to, <laughs> you have, to sit there, have to sit there for three hours a day now, do you? <laughs> I have to turn it up really loud so I can hear it all. <laughs> and it's all kind of like... Bleached meat for sale. Bleached meat for sale. Every Thursday on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. 3 p.m. to 6. Yeah! Right. Woo! Yeah, I'm stuck in it. Love that song. Yeah, okay. Gosh, and fantastically yummy. It is yummy, yes. yes. Isn't it just? How y'all feel out there? Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Check this out. One, two, three. In the place to be, as it is plain to see, he is DJ Run, and I am DMC. Funky Fresh for 1983. DJ Jam Master J, inside the place with all the bass. He leaves without a trace, and he came here tonight to get on your case. And we are the crush grooving, the body moving, the record making, and the record breaking. And it goes a little something like this. It goes a one, two, Three and here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we here we, here we go. DMC and DJ Run, Tom Diddy, Tom Diddy, Diddy, Tom Tom. We're rocking on the mic, and then you know where we're from. Tom Diddy, Tom Diddy, Diddy, Tom Tom. We hope y'all ready for the big beat drum. Tom Diddy, Tom Diddy, Diddy, Tom Tom. So people in the place in the big beat come. Here it come, here it come. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel, and today on the program, Colson Whitehead. Colson, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> well, it wasn't actually me. <laughs> well, the, show, the institution of the... But of think, WCBN, yeah. yes, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and do you find it much changed since your last visit here? Well, you know, it seems to be more graffiti on the walls. Um, <laughs> and on the table. On the table. But it's still the same pleasant place I was three years ago. Mm, we have new air ducts. So probably oh. your lungs are perhaps happier yes yeah <laughs> well i think I was, I was still smoking back then so i was probably chain smoking a lot more so yeah oh, so who's nice. to even you can't yes i have nothing to judge it with <laughs> right so how's the not smoking going it's all right you know i mean i, I i've gone for like a year and year and a half before so it's been like since the election on november 2nd i was like if obama wins i'll quit smoking <laughs> and then he won so that was disappointing um but on I, but a personal I, level, on of first, course. <laughs> but I haven't smoked since then. <laughs> well, well, Colson, before we... Congratulations. But um, before we go any further, I'm going to read your, your short bio from the back of your book, because you're here in town, you're visiting um, surely, Ann Arbor surely. with your latest novel, Sag mm-hmm. Harbor. And, and this is the biography in the back. Colson Whitehead is the author of the novels The Intuitionist, a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award. John Henry Days, which won the Young Lions Fiction Award, the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and Apex Hides the Hurt, a New York Times notable book and winner of the Penn Oakland Award. He has also written The Colossus of New York, a book of essays about his hometown, a recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and a MacArthur Fellowship. The genius grants, right? Uh, he lives in Brooklyn. Look at your big brain, Colson. Well, the thing is, you know, I, I sort of, you know, doing the author's bio was always like sort of anxiety producing things. Cause like sometime you're like, oh, I'm just like going on about nice things that have happened. And then so you, you overcompensate by being like, 
Colson White had exists in New York City. He's a writer. And so I go between like being super terse and not giving any information and then giving too much information but you know so i don't know so but you know the whole the whole what what's your author photo like and that's always just a whole useless uh time suck unfortunately yeah do but maybe you have people who you trust that can help you with that because sometimes we can be blind to i don't know these things right well you know with the with the bio you know instead of anything with my author photo definitely over the years i've made some mistakes like my first one <laughs> i have like uh you know, i look really intense and that's because uh, Don DeLillo's Don DeLillo's Underworld had just come out, and his author photo is like really, you know, it looks like he's gonna take a hatchet to somebody's face. And so I figured that was like what you should that's look the like. That's look. <laughs> you should just keep, have this sort of psychotic stare. So that's what I was going. For, that's what I was going for with that one. And then this time, I figured uh, I had a friend who's a photographer, and I got a professional picture done. And my publicist, the publicist at Doubleday, who never said anything about my photos, was like, thank God. <laughs> so, you know, there's, uh, that's a nice, you know, nice sort of photo we have now. And I was looking at your website, Colson. Um, is it is it colsonwhitehead.org? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, but it's actually, that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's what it is. <laughs> And, and on it, you, you, you kind of have these these great like moments. There, you're quite self-effacing in them. And you say that the one of the best pictures um, was in the New York Times recently. And you said it's from far away. Yeah, it's a full body shot. You can't really see my face. And it's really a, not a very lovely, well done. On the docks. It's yeah. really, it is nice composition. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, so anyway, we're talking about all these visual things. So let's get back to radio. Radio matters and words and... Um, and and fill in a little bit more of your biography, because um, you were like you mentioned, you were here three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for but, Apex, Signs of the Hurt. Ah, uh, yes. But um, I don't wish I had seen those earlier author photos because I've seen the one of you eating a hamburger, I think, online. <laughs> but, but I have missed the 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 Axe Man photo. It's there. It's, it's there. It's there. Okay. Uh, some more digging ahead then. Um, but so so you were born in 1969. Yes. <laughs> Sun shivers down your spine. <laughs> uh, yeah, 69 and was a good year. It was a very good year. But this book, Sag Harbor, um, which you're you're going on tour now um, for, um, it takes place in the 80s. The 80s are completely reveled in, and um, and it seems that it, you're drawing a lot from your own autobiography. Um, tapping in perhaps at least with like for example the the there's a bb gun moment in the the novel so this is all fiction mm-hmm. but then then in your own life story there's a parallel moment where do, do you uh, have a bb gun like yeah, bb right, pellet in yeah, your right there. I, ah, again we need some video feed <laughs> don't we <laughs> i can vouch for it i see it but i hadn't noticed it before right i guess you know for many years i thought i would uh set off alarms and like airports <laughs> but that didn't happen so basically, you know, the book is called Sag Harbor, and it's about some kids from New York City who go out to uh, this black part of the Hamptons called, um, called Azurest in the town of Sag Harbor. And they're from the city, and they, you know, run wild in the summer. Their parents only come out on weekends, and so they're left to their own devices. And that's, and, and that's normal then, too, for this time, because I almost found that hard to believe. That... Yes. I mean, you know, uh, and you know, and I—that was my experience, and so that's the jumping-off point. And definitely, I, you know, me and my brother—I was 15, he was 14—and we were just sort of out, left our own devices uh, in the middle of the week. Our friend Jay, a couple blocks over, was alone too. And there were there were adults around. If you know, if we got had to go to the hospital, someone, you know, there are people around who could take us. Um, but it's not something that would happen now. So um, it seemed like a good 
place to start a, a novel. My previous books have been start off from, I guess, more intellectual propositions I wanted to explore, like problems I wanted to sort of get at. Uh, but I, I, I'd avoided writing, using stuff in my personal life. Well, well, how do you feel about the coming of age novels, or is that something? That... Well, I hated them growing up. Like I didn't like Holden Caulfield. Like I thought it was like a whiny, you know, something, something. And you know, if you if, thank like, you, like, and the FCC thanks you. <laughs> like if I went around in my household saying everybody's a phony, like my parents would say, and. You know, it's like, yeah, we told you, you know, when you were two, that everyone's a phony. So I could never relate to Catherine the Rye. And when I realized I wanted to write about Seg Harbor and the summer of 85, I didn't want to inject, like, these the sort of fake melodrama where, like, the kids find a body and then, like, Stand By Me starts playing. Or, like, uh, there are two kids on the branch and the, one kid shakes the branch, the other kid dies. and That's your other... book in 10 years from now <laughs> when everything's going to... Yeah, so I didn't want to do, like, fake you know, fake action like Jaws or whatever. So I wanted to try and elevate these small, mundane, personal moments to the stuff of fiction, of, of, of art. So first crappy, like how can I narrate the first crappy job, first kiss, um, a BB gun fight and make it and make it transcend its quotidian or, origins and become, you know, a worthwhile story. But but could that also be what's what's also important about it? Because that there's a genuineness there that's a, a different type of depth. Well, I think, you know, when people can relate to it, people relate to it because it is ordinary. There's not some sort of life-changing, transcendent uh, moment. It's really sort of, you know, I think we're a collection of small moments that change us over time. And I wanted to sort of narrate that, you know, the main character. And so Benji. that was in your head, Coulson, when you, when you, like, how did this project actually begin? Was it something that you just... Um because you went back to Seg Harbor and there was something about like that those memories or those things that like, you look at something but you see the layers behind it or like what what started what started um the project for you well you know I had gone out to Seg Harbor for a long time because I went to college and then I was like too you know Hamptons are too bougie I don't want to be out there you know I'm a hipster uh but then just started visiting my my mother who moved out there full time and renting my aunt's place it's just a nice mellow place and so I'd have friends out and each time I would try to tell them, like, that's so-and-so's house, or that's the kid who used to beat me up, and then my sister beat him up, and then my, his mother beat up my mother. Like, the, the stories just kept getting more and more extravagant, and I, and I realized that there was such a history of, to the place, and it hadn't been told. People didn't really know about this black community in the Hamptons, and uh, the fact that we were left on our own was sort of like a good proposition to move from. So... Um, I wanted to write about it, and then I had to figure out how to structure it. And since there isn't this, you know, a strong linear plot, the idea is that the voice, you know, Benji's voice and Benji's perspective, are enough of a provide enough narrative propulsion propulsion to pull you through. I didn't. I, I asked the the publishers, but I wasn't able to get the books books in time, like to have like more of a, a scope of your work. And you're right. I could have gone to the library. Been you're unprepared. But that's okay. Life is <laughs> hey, short. Hey, look at all this. Paper. Yeah, yeah. You're very prepared. Yeah. yeah thanks. Um, uh, but, but, um, but this, but, but coming. So, so I read about you, right, mm -hmm, yeah. in the prep of things, um, but not the actual uh, getting the sense of the words themselves. But, but when I came, the to... actual primary sources. Yes, your yes, primary what, sources. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, no, it's different. I mean, it just, it's, you know... Um, the projects seem vastly different, but it seems like something that almost, in a weird way, coming of age as a writer, where you felt more solid about some sort of... 
not voice, because it's obviously a different voice than what would have been coming before. But but do you think that's why this book is possible now, rather than your first book that's based on autobiography? Well, yeah, I mean, the cliche is that your first book is, you know, drawn very directly from your personal experience. And I was so self-conscious when I started writing in the 90s, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, like, the Gen X novel where, like, it opens with, like, Kurt Cobain's death and you're coming to grips and, like, you know, that sort of thing. Which is going on, which is sort of common in the, in the mid-90s. Um, so I started off being more oddball and, you know, figuring out how to talk about race or technology and culture in different ways. So through elevator inspectors. That's weird. Uh, through John Henry days. <laughs> like, uh, John. Yeah, yeah. So, and now, you know, definitely I hated adolescence and I found it excruciating just to think about it. So it took 20 years to be able to uh, sort of process it and figure out what I could use from it that could serve a story. And then just technically, uh, whenever I tried a, a first-person voice for a full book, for a full book, it always ended up lapsing to my own voice. And so it took, you know, five books in to be able to have a first-person narrator for 300-something pages that was um, a character and not some version of, not, not, not myself, if you know what I'm saying. Yes, I do. And so 300 pages or so. Well, how does it turn out? I mean, I guess when I handed it in, it was like three... Three fifty. Now it's two seventy. But yeah, yeah. That is so. So actually, there was a moment where at some point you realized it had like the character um, uh, Ben Benji had morphed into not being some some cusp of you. Then. Well, you know, I mean, if I could have used like more of myself, I mean, you know, my experiences are in there. So I worked in an ice cream store for three summers. Uh, big Olaf. Big Olaf. But I did not have like a racist incident with my boss and, and then try and sabotage like his freezers. So, I mean, <laughs> right. I did add, try to add something to my uninteresting life. Like I, my friends aren't that interesting and I'm not, I'm not interesting. So I have to make up things that happened. So the way of the writer. Yes. The observer. Um, I mean, I would love to do some sort of memoir where, by the way, you seem very interesting, Colson. Thank you. On radio. You know, you, people can't see me. Um, not sure what that <laughs> and his, <laughs> his boring hand gestures. <laughs> Um, so, uh, um, oh, yeah, um, you know, I, I wanted to say basic character on my friend, John, but each time John appeared, he would do something unjohn like because the overriding purpose is to serve the story, and so I'd have to change things, and so each time he appears or opens his mouth or walks onto the chapter, he's doing something unlike my friend because there's a higher purpose, and so, while well, you know, when I was organizing the book, I thought, oh, and here's the here's the you know my friend Billy, but um, it didn't work out that way. And were were people sort of those friends? Were they disappointed? Did they want to see more of, or do they see themselves in the book? Well, you know, I mean, all those guys I hung out with I haven't seen in a long time. Some of them still go out to Sag Harbor, but or different times. You know, I'm only out there for three weeks, so um, the book's been out you know for a few weeks, and I haven't heard from them. So we'll see what they think. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, well, let's take a short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program, Colson Whitehead. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. 
glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care. I can't take the smell, can't take the noise. Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice. Rats in the front room, roaches in the back. Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat. I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far. Cause a man with the touch of repossessed my car. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got living writers here. And today on the program, Colson Whitehead. He's in town with his latest novel, Sag Harbor. Um, and, and a quick shout out. Thanks, Alex Belhodge, for, for engineering so nicely today, as always. Um, so, Colson, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, in, in The New Yorker, I think when you like when you burst onto the scene, I think I don't have the date here, but John Updike uh, called you ambitious and, uh, and scintillating. That's very nice of him. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel to be scintillating? Um, uh, well, you know, I mean, I think there's like, you know, my private self, which is 95 percent, you know, in my house, walking around, working is where I work and live. And I'm just sort of. Uh, padding around in my dirty pajamas, surfing the web. Not trying to be scintillating. Not trying to be scintillating. And then, you know, then your book comes out and, and it's out into the world and people have responses to it and you talk about it. And sometimes you understand what they're saying, sometimes you don't. But it's all very, you know, it's all very separate and external. Like there's no sort of, dis- there's a real disconnect between what what comes out in uh, the press and like what is actually going on with the process and how you live every day, you know. Yeah. So the so when the book is in the the world, in a marketing sense, like when it's out there, rather than when you just finish it or you've made the story, um, then that's a, that's a different part of you that's called upon to to be out there, sort of getting the word out. I like your YouTube clip though. I thought that was smart. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you know, in the age of. It's a brief tour of uh, Sag Harbor. Colson walks you around, so you can check that out on YouTube if you yeah, want. Yeah, my publisher was like, oh, the new thing is oh. YouTube. And so they sent a, a film crew out. Well, this one guy, and he maybe walked around and did like a four-minute video, uh, which is interesting because, you know, my first book came out in 99, and I did some small videos like barnesandnoble.com, and they were trying out different things, like weird, like, promo videos but at that point there was no common platform so things were like real player or this was quick time and that was a sort of you know became a f- sort of flop because just because you go to barnes noble doesn't mean you have real player and yada yada and so I, you know i've been around it's only been 10 years but it's been cool to see how the promo thing changes well because almost everyone has a website now right people so have you, websites you have and then like um, so it's a promo video and it seems new, but they, I, we were doing them 10 years ago. It's just now there's a common platform and so everyone can see them. You have to download something for like 20 minutes on your modem in order to play it. And so it's, it, you know, it's a different, the same thing's going on, but it's a d- different time. Is, is it interesting to you as a writer? Like, do you ever look at the feedback? Cause you know, of course with YouTube, for example, um, then there's of course all the comments, and so to see what people yeah, I mean, say, or, you know, that could seem poisonous after. Well, I, I mean, or in a good or bad way. No, but there's, yeah. there's YouTube comments, there's like blog comments, you know, there's comments on Amazon. So you have to figure out like what you can handle, because you get like some stinker and it's just there for like years. And it's there forever, frankly. And what are you gonna do? Like, you know, have a flame war with some guy on Amazon or YouTube? So you have to like 
learn to keep your distance. And if you're going to be curious, be prepared that you know someone's someone's going to give you one star and say, you know, this guy's a joker. Right, right. Um, but you're not. I'm not a joker. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Um, in fact, in the book, I was I was wondering going back to Sag Harbor, um, which in a little while we'll, we'll hear um, a, a piece from. Um, it's it's when you're you're in the book at least my experience felt like it was in some ways like a very quiet book but the things were were building but it was a quiet it's like a, a being there um w- with these characters um but i did notice there are moments where um there's these allusions to um maybe some of the friends like a friend dying or because when for example we've talked about the bb gun that there's this um episode in the book and and then there's um it kind of connects to that that um or it's hinted at that a couple of the friends don't come out you know much later on not that summer of 85 but um can you talk about that like was that conscious that um that element of i don't know and there's darkness with the family where there's there's the violence it feels like the undercurrent and uh, do you want to talk about that a little bit sure i mean um uh, yeah, there's not a conventional plot, but there is sort of, you know, obviously forward movement. Um, some of it is seasonal. We're being pulled through the summer. And some of it is just, you know, getting more of, more of a full idea of who these people are, who the parents are. So the parents don't really appear that much until Chapter 5. Then we get a full-on sort of dose in the, uh, I guess what I always call the barbecue from hell chapter. Um, so... Uh, um, in the, in I was the, surprised <laughs> that at the like when he finally when you know when Benji gets to eat some of it, I thought it would be different. Right. Um, so uh, uh, in terms of the BB, you know, the, the narrator is an adult looking back on his childhood, and and for me, I couldn't have done a fifteen-year-old voice for three hundred pages; it would have gone crazy. So I needed an adult perspective, organizing his life and making this sort of raw material and shaping it and having a sort of critical perspective uh, on it. And so he does have this knowledge of stuff that's after the summer, where people are going. And um, uh, Is that why with, when somebody... Well, actually, no, Colson, go... Well, I wondered about... Because um, I was read that it said the, there was... Um, someone had asked you about, had you intended a young adult uh, category for it? And that that was one of those moments where you did respond to them because that sort of went out of proportion, it seemed to me, that like where someone had said that you were upset by that. And... And yeah. and I liked your res- I would you like Well yeah, I mean now you know, it's like some completely random blogger was like Colson White had got huffy when someone asked him if his book should be marketed as YA and then like another blogger who writes a lot about stuff on the on the web on about books like can you get care to comment? And so it was like <laughs> you know, a mini scandal about nothing and and, term- and you know, at the conference I was just like, I don't do marketing. I'm a writer, you know, you talk go to the marketing panel if you want to talk about marketing. Uh I don't yeah, you know, think about how things about that end of things. Um, so, and then they took that as sort of a rebuff or something that you thought there was something wrong with the YA or or. But I wondered when you were talking about the voice if that doesn't have something to do with it because it's not as if you're writing um, it as if it's this 15 year old voice that keeps there's this uh, this other presence. Yeah, there. I mean people cheat. You know, they'll have like a, a pre- really precocious genius 12 year old narrator, and that's how they get around the fact that. The limited perspective, and so it's a precocious, you know, child prodigy who's narrating. He's a twelve-year-old narrating. That's not, you know, uh, most of us aren't prodigies when we're fifteen. We're just like numbskull teenagers, and so I do want to talk about numbskullness, but I don't want to have it 
uh, articulated in the words of a numbskull. Right. So, <laughs> or be at the steering wheel of the boat. Sort of yeah, thing. yeah. So um, there's that. Um, but the darkness of the family, because I sort of took you away from, from that. like those. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, adding a new layer. You know, you have, you set well, a baseline. Tension. and it's, it's tension. You create a baseline of what the summer's about. And then um, each chapter, I want to sort of ramp up the dysfunction a little bit. That's what I was thinking. And so it's, you know, two chapters of setup, and then we... Um, we meet Benji, and then he does something in an ice cream parlor, and that's like one sort of twist on his character because he's been a certain way for 100 pages, and then he does an action that perverts that. And the next chapter is the BB gun fight, which is a rehearsal for later kind of fights. I, I think I picked 85 because I was, I was a teen then, and I, I know it. Uh, but also, you know, the kids love pop culture, so the, the films and music they love are play a big part and hopefully can talk about larger things. And so 85... Uh, hip hop is still kind of corny. Uh, it has like there are groups like UTFO who dress like the village people. They have characters and they're really corny. But five years later from that, from then, you're gonna have Ice Cube and NWA, and the music is commercialized, gangsterized, and these kids, um, and they sort of the innocence of the music is gone in the same way that that the boys who are 15 in '85 will be in their late teens and. Uh, in a couple of years, and it'll be young black men and targets and have a whole different uh, negotiation with the world. And so the sort of... But there's also, you have some of that negotiation in the, their lives right now because there's moments where, and it's not like you're, you know, getting the two by four out by any means. It's, but it's like, it's sort of chilling because it'll be, because um, one of the friends will have a car. Like, so he gets to be, you know, kind of big cheese and they all go with him in the car and but there's this idea of well you don't go too far because something uh i wish i had the page actually but um because about, something racial might happen yeah, you, don't and you, don't know the, yeah. you don't know where the exits are something yeah where i you mean, just think oh yeah i mean they're you know sag harbor because there's the beach community idea where you think well oh no everything must be okay for everyone here because sometimes there's this illusion that class um economics or something then changes some racial tension. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I know what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I mean, just because in the Hamptons, it's not all rosy. I mean, what do you call a um, a black man with a PhD? The N word. I mean, it's like you know, no matter you know, that's like an old joke from, from Malcolm okay. X. Um, <laughs> um, don't be shocked. Um, I know. Apparently, I'm whiter than ever right now, right? Oh God. So. Um, yeah, no, if they strayed, to, you know, if we strayed out of Sag Harbor and we didn't know what was up, we did have sort of paranoid fantasies. I mean, we are still targets in this mostly white um, uh, part of the island. And if we do if we do end up going up the wrong street in Southampton, you know, the cops will follow us. You know, it's uh, so. And, and you, there's a moment also, a subtle moment on the beach where like he's because they can see the beach from the house. And there's people who are tourists and um, obviously not residents. But then they came down and walking along the beach and then they realized that they were around people that didn't look like them. So they kind of turned around again. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, it, you know, the the, um, the folks in the book have their own beach and it's uh, it's all black. But. You know, this white tourist will stroll down and then suddenly they'll sort of realize, oh, you know, everyone's looking at me and turn back. And the same thing happens when the kids go to the white beach, the Southampton, East Hampton. Uh, they're the only black bodies on the beach. And they realize that the same sort of scanning out from the uh, decks 
um, of the beach houses that they did on their black beach is happening to them, except there's white people watching them also. And so, you know, you stray, stray out of your territory and your subject becomes object and object becomes subject. You know? I feel like I keep taking you away also from that aspect. You said so each chapter, like things are becoming slightly more ramped up um, or, or, or dysfunctional even. And, um, well, and- I, I, I mean, like you're, you know, you, you create effects by ju- juxtaposition. And so if you have um, uh, a childhood caper, which has elements of... of <laughs> childhood caper, that's great. Of, of the sinister and then... Um, you sort of expand upon that sort of darkness in the next chapter. And then, you know, you have the, the caper where they try to get into the, the club. And so you have a really dark chapter, and then you juxtapose it with a more sort of light um, chapter. And I think, and I think that um, evokes the dissociation that's going on. Because, like, you know, Benji is sort of aware of what's going on with his family, but not totally. And he's sort of in denial of, like, his family dysfunction. And so in the same way that that kind of personality retreats into ignoring what's going on the book is sort of ignoring the darkness of the the dysfunction of the family and going into this sort of more lighter thing about uh getting into a club and trying to see lisa lisa and Mm -hmm. um and utfo and so you know you know hopefully you know i'm manipulating the, the the reader's mood you know and that's my way of moving us forward and and changing up the rules of the book from chapter to chapter if that makes sense it does but it does seem like that that um that 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 the voice of the perspective of um is aware of of that level of um i don't know like something that's just uh almost like like with the interactions with the mom and dad where and then the uh, reggie finds the a note that the mother has sketched out like yells at me in front of my friends or these things like you just think oh you know there's so much and they're, not, and they're not really commented on. I mean, or that the sister is not there because yeah. she doesn't w- want to be there. Not just because it's too bougie or <laughs> bougie. Bougie. <laughs> okay. Well, let's take a short break, and I'll have some elocution lessons here. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Colson Whitehead and his novel Sag Harbor will be back. Yo, EMD. Yeah, what's up, man? Think of that girl they call Roxanne. She's all stuck up. Why you say that? Cause you wouldn't give a guy like me no rap. Man, she was walking down the street, so I said, Hello, I'm Kanko from UTFO. And she was so, I said, So, baby, don't you know I can sing rap dancing just one show? Cause I'm Kanko, Mr. Sophisticator. As far as I know, ain't nobody created from beginning to end and to beginning. I never knew because I'm all about winning, but if I was to lose, I wouldn't be the same. Cause I'm not a gambler, I don't bet I don't be in no casino. And baby, why you nizzle? The is I is the grizzly kiss and kizzle. I thought you'd be impressive, give me devious rap. I thought I had a book inside my sinister trap. I thought it'd be a piece of paper, there was nothing like that. I guess that's what I give a thing, it ain't that right, black. I thought I had it in the palm of my hand. But man, oh man, if I was grand, I'd bang. Roxanne, Roxanne, Roxanne. Can't you understand? Roxanne, Roxanne. I wanna be your man. Yo, Kango, I don't think that you're dense, but you went about the matter with no experience. You should know. She doesn't need a guy like you, she needs a guy like me with a high IQ. And she takes for my rap, cause my rap's the best. The educator back at MD will never fess. So when I met her, I wasted no time, but stuck up Roxanne, paid me no mind. 
She thought my name was Barry. I told her it was Gary. She said she didn't like it, so she told to call me Barry. She said she loved to marry my baby, she would carry. And if we had a baby, his name's the baby Harry. Her mother's name is Mary, which is really quite contrary. Her face is very hairy, and you can say it's scary. She lives in Miami, our father's a fairy. His wife's a secretary, and son's a memory. Back in January, almost in February. But every time I say this rhyme, it makes me kind of weary. It's only customary to get this commentary. You never find a rhyme like this in any dictionary. Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Colson Whitehead, um, reading from Sag Harbor very soon. Yeah, you can't can say uh, M-O-F-O, right? Like mofo? Oh, <laughs> like, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, I wouldn't yes, say, the, I wouldn't say yes, the real, yeah. Because it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah syllables, yeah. so... Yeah. That yeah. seems fine. <laughs> nice. Excellent. <laughs> Not that. I was going to say, we should have sign language, and I was like, well, we do, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's a review on Amazon. I was like, I like the book, but it's a little rough on the language. But I guess, you know, in terms of, like, the profanity, because, like, they curse a lot, the kids. Yeah. And oh. so there's a lot of profanity. So I guess it was, like, some, you know, older person who but, didn't yeah, That's like... true. I was like, I think I must <laughs> hang out with hooligans. <laughs> and I was like, what? Really? <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, it's a standard seven word you can't say on TV, but... <laughs> right, right. On, on radio. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, well, let's see. Well, yeah, so Sag Harbor, you're in the, we should mention that you're here in town for Bookfest. Yes. Coulson, and, and tomorrow, well. Is it airing tonight? It, no. Or right it's, now? We're on Wednesdays. No, I wish, I wish it was live. That would be great. But it's Wednesdays, so we're in a time warp right. here. But, so I um, was in town, yeah. And Although I get, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're completely confused. Where are we? Who are we? <laughs> yeah, the Bookfest, I'm excited. It should be fun. Yes. And today, today was the writers' conference. So I did a talk um, about the writers' craft. Ah, the crafty writers. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, I like that you had a, a title of an essay that was "Wow, fiction works." Well, yeah. I mean, I um, because I get invited to do like serious craft talks at colleges and stuff, but I have nothing to say. So I make fake. I do fake lectures, making fun of the idea of writing, or not taking it as seriously. So. Whenever I do a, a, a talk about writing, it's like a it's like a parody. So how to write, how to write a memoir, you know, what is a poem? I liked your how to read paragraph too. That was good. Yes, how to, yeah. I mean, um, uh, like close reading. Like you know how to read. I mean, I'm reading this, so obviously you can't. Yeah. So. But you said your formative, your intellectual coming of age was at Oxford. Oh, well, that was a character. Oh, 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 oh girl, a, Nice. Be careful when you look at things <laughs> in pieces. <laughs> yeah, that, that piece was sort of making fun of um, certain critics who are very leery of postmodernism and, to, you know, the, um, the Zadie Smiths, the Jonathan Franzens of the world who are, you know, it was a James Wood parody. So that's... so. That's so. That's a so. That's an example. Of an example what, of my fake up to. craft. Yeah, okay. my fake craft talks. Yeah. And um and how and then is there a question session afterwards or, or yes and then I'm then I'm serious you know then, okay yeah <laughs> that must be pretty good you're almost like the um, Stephen Colbert of of the craft talks or well yeah I mean, that's that's yeah I mean I think sometimes people get upset or they, you know they take notes for a first oh man and then they get into it you know. Um, <laughs> Well, that, can we hear a bit of Sag Harbor then? Surely, that, surely. Okay. So, I mean, it's self-explanatory. Um, and, um, I picked 85, and then I, 1985 was the setting, and I had to figure out what would work in the book. And so it turns out that um, this horrible event happened, and here we go. 
A few weeks earlier, the Coca-Cola company had discontinued their signature cola. They'd lost market share to Pepsi. Diet Coke, the sister brand, had been too successful, luring away consumers with the promise of thinner thighs, a figure more in line with that aerobicized you. The higher-ups hit upon a catastrophic solution. They decided to replace the most famous drink in the world with an imposter. I've been addicted to Coke for years with a two or three can a day habit since the fifth grade. Starting around the same time, my schoolmates started stealing, shoplifting, now that I think about it. When my sister told me not to be so hyper, or my parents told me to knock it off, I vibrated with, vibrated with the strain of keeping still and wondered why nature had cursed me so. It wasn't until I was in high school that I learned what caffeine was. My love for Coke went beyond mere buzz, however. How could one not be charmed by the effervescent joviality of a tall glass of the stuff, the manic activity, activity of the bubbles, popping, reforming, popping anew, sliding up the inside of the glass to freedom, as if the beverage were, miraculously, caffeinated on itself? That tart first sip, preferably with the ice knocking against the lips with it for an added sensory flourish, that stunned the brain into total recall of pleasure, all the cokes consumed before, and all those impending cokes, the long line of satisfaction underpinning a life. What forgiveness for the supreme disappointment of a fountain coke that, that turned out to be fizzless and dead, or a lukewarm coke that had been sitting for a while, falling away from its ideal temperature of 46.5 degrees Fahrenheit slash 8 degrees Celsius. All the bubbles fled so that, it, so that it had become a useless mud of sugar, which is what new coke tasted like, actually. I remember when I first heard they were changing the formula, April 23rd, 1985. It was dinner time, and I'd wandered into the living room to ask my mother a question. I can't remember what it was, as it was erased by the terrible information. I walked in just in time to hear the newscaster say, A surprising announcement about an American classic. And somehow I knew... I stayed through the commercial break and watched as Roberto Gozieta, the CEO of Coca-Cola, cheered the end of the world. It was inconceivable, like tampering with the laws of nature. Hey, let's try gravity-free Tuesdays. Buckle up, mofos. From this day on, water is incredibly flammable. Let's see how that goes. I slunk back into my room, dizzy and confused. It was as if someone had popped the top of the world and let all the air out. Within days, I'd cornered the market, the local market on Old Coke in a grid defined by 106 to the north, 96th Street to the south, and from Amsterdam to the river, buying up what I could from the corner bodegas, the increasingly slick delis popping up on Broadway, and the assorted stationery stores of the hood. By the time New Coke started to, appeared, started to appear, a few days after the announcement, I was well prepared, with a huge stash in my closet, a prayer against doomsday. I had no dreams of profiteering, of selling my stock at a dear price to aficionados when the day came when the people of Earth discovered the treasure they destroyed. As if the cola were an exquisite lizard or spiny bivalve, driven to extinction in a race's savage drive to ruin. No, I wanted it all to myself, like an art thief who steals new descending a staircase or some key Picasso and hangs it on the wall of his own private gallery for his wicked and ingrown pr pleasure, 
at peace with the fact that the world is unaware of his activities, and perhaps that is actually the point of the entire exercise. Although such a sentiment is probably not too surprising coming from a boy whose main recreation was masturbation. Thank you, Colson. <laughs> um, that's great about the coke. I don't think I've ever, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone write about it, and that was just right on. I know. We, I love coke. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell it comes through. <laughs> well, yeah, you got to write what you know. So. Right, exactly. For it to be authentic. Yes. <laughs> to me. Um, so yeah, so that's one of the very real parts of the book. Um, so. So is it always that um, you're um, in your other other writing? Are you also always using because there's so much humor in that, too, such an attention to this minute detail. And then. Um, and, and I don't know, with that voice, it just it seemed like such a great. You just start to like that was one of the moments where I just really loved the main character where I just thought these obsessions and like the, almost a vulnerability and and then what this leads to is yeah. like his one of yeah. his first big slip ups. Right. So well, I, I think, you know, his voice. I mean, I generally like to um, have some sort of form of humor in my books. And this voice definitely accommodates a lot of different types of humor. Um, the silliness about the message by Grandmaster Flash or like, you know, this, these sort of comic assigns. Um, so, you know, with, with this narrator, I was able to let it rip with a book like the intuitionist where I am mostly playing it straight. And the main character is a very sort of repressed and, um, it's a fake detective novel. So the language, the sentences are very clipped. I couldn't have, I couldn't sort of, I can't have this sort of broad humor and where there is humor, it's deadpan. You know, it's making fun of the premise that there are elevator inspectors who are important and have, like, beats and, like, ride around like cops. So the humor is different, but that's a very important component of how I see the world and, you know, and how I, you know, construct uh, my narratives. Um, in terms of, like, you know, that close zoom in, yeah, I mean, that's, like, a feature of my writing. It's, like, get, getting... Uh, no matter what it is, like the sort of insane close-up on things. 46.7 degrees or, or for the, right, how yeah. cold the Coke is. and um, yeah. Making it real and zooming in um, as close as I can uh, without sort of destroying the illusion. But having um, a lot of fun with breaking something down and figuring out how it works. And so I think it's, it's, it is actually funny that because I asked Colson to read this part. So he humored me. Thank you. Um, but it's funny that I was wanting us to talk about sort of the darker elements like some of the the pathos or the the tension and then i <laughs> give us this comedic interlude um so how was it was it harder to write this these moments in this book because there weren't maybe the you know the those even if it's not like the you know like those moments with the elevators where it's you're making these things up and they're important on their beats and was this a yeah was it i guess hmm, is it was it harder or easier i don't mean that what a what a terrible no, yeah, question they're always hard they're always hard in different ways and so with the intuitionist i was learning how to write uh a linear narrative with john henry days i was trying to figure out how to do a book with a lot of with a decentralized character and sort of structure and with this i was trying to figure out how to make these mundane moments into an interesting story. And so each what, book, each book has its own problems you got to figure out. But what surprised you about the writing of this book that you couldn't have anticipated? Because it's sort of something you felt like you could do it now. You were, were ready to risk like this 
at least like a, a setting of adolescence. Mm-hmm. And well, you know, so what surprised you? Whether or not um, uh, these disclosures are, tr- you know, Benji's, Benji's emotional disclosures or psychological disclosures are true to my life or not, I did have to, I do have to dig deep in order to get them out there. And so um, I decided early on that I was going to be just like do the full Monty. And even though it's going to be incredibly draining and excruciating, you know, describe what it is to be a horribly awkward teenager. Describe, you know, trying to make out with somebody. Describe, you know, some horrible parental dysfunction that you're embroiled in and can't escape. And so once I committed to doing it and doing it the best way I could, um, uh, you know, that was like the challenge and it was also fun and it was, you know, exhilarating. And it was very different than, you know, some. I mean, I've had moments like that in other parts of my book where I'm doing getting to some sort of emotional chapter that evokes in a response in me as like a writer and as a person. And it happened a lot more with this book. Sort of revelations then (laughs) in some way. (laughs) Yeah. Um, uh, You know what? We'll take a break and we'll come back. We'll come back for more revelations from Colson Whitehead. Um, His novel, Sag Harbor. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program, Colson Whitehead, and with his novel Sag Harbor. And uh, that was that was the Smiths. Yes, the Smiths, the lovely Smiths. And and uh, the '80s. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were denigrating the '80s on on the YouTube clip where you I think where you were saying maybe the '70s possibly could be worse. But or... yeah, I mean, I, I mean, think about it. Like, what was worse, the '70s or the '80s? Uh, they're they're both sort of atrocious. Uh, to different degrees, but but yet we circle back to to honor them, like you know, especially in LA, where the the they flash back to eighties fashion, kind of regularly now, <laughs> like every few years it seems. Whenever like. like in college, like the Artie dorm had like an eighties party, like on January first, nineteen ninety. I mean, I think we you know <laughs> the we go back to the eighties, you know, our favorite periods pretty quickly now. We're cycling through, so um, I mean, I liked 
whatever, like four years ago when the whole electro clash thing happened, or five years ago, seven years ago, when like early new wave stuff was coming. Yeah. Uh, and so now I feel like early new wave is back again. I see all these crazy kids walking around Brooklyn, you know, dressed like they're walking out of a um, Devo video. And so, but that, they're doing that like seven years ago. So we just keep cycling through over and over again. Yeah, almost like when Interpol came out with their first album, it was like, ah, oh, great, because there was something so very familiar, even though, you know, doing it in their own way, of course, but it was, it was like having a Coke, a classic Coke. Sure. I mean, I feel, I felt like, you know, the boomers were in so such ascendancy for a long time that, uh, you know, they came of age in the 60s and that they've been in control of the mass media you know, and the, the means, of, means of cultural production for so long. But now people in their 30s and 40s are taking over. And, and instead of having, like, you know, the inevitable annual documentary about the summer of love and, you know, it was a time of, of joy. It was a time of fringe vests, you know, and they put on, like, one pill makes you... You know, like, they always, they always play the same Jefferson Airplane song. So how many times do you have to celebrate the summer of love? So I figure with this... You know, the people who grew up in the 70s and 80s are now in, t are taking the reins of cultural production. And we're going to have, like, our star, you know, we're going to pay homage to Star Wars, you know, until, <laughs> until the people who grew up in the 90s take over. So but now it's our time to go back to the 80s and force it down the throats of people older and younger than us. Yes. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> um, so was it in the 80s, though, when you first decided, you know, I, I'm a writer. Did you ever have that idea or was it just something you always did or something? I mean, cause it said, it said that you liked comic books and yeah, and, I, mean, I, think I, yeah I think I remember like reading the and, Chris Claremont, John Byrne, X-Men like in 81 and being like, Oh, this would be a good job. And all my friends who now write either want to draw or write like the X-Men or, or mm -hmm. Spider-Man. So, um, and Stephen King and Stephen and, King, you know, like, I love like Carrie and Salem's Lot and The Shining and I, and until really until I got to college I thought I would you know I would write like the Black Shining or the Black Salem's Lot if you took like a Stephen King novel and put like the black in front of it like that's what I wanted to do and then I started reading the modernists and stuff like that and that was like a different sort of take on things but right I guess I've not, I haven't thought of that like the Black Shining <laughs> why not you know well, in the seventies, you know, with the rise of, I was teaching a a, a class on uh, great moments in black ex existentialism, which is unfortunate because I always stumble on the word existentialism. But I had to say it all like ten times a class, so that was really awkward. But um, I did a thing on like the gangster pose and like black exploitation, and so you know, I assumed like all the the kids who were eighteen and nineteen had some familiarity with black exploitation, but of course they didn't because they were born and. 1982 or whatever so did you bring like shaft and and like uh, i made i made them watch shaft and superfly and then i showed them youtube trailers of like all the all the black horror movies so blackenstein scream blackula scream uh the original blackula abby was a, a ripoff of the exorcist with a uh it was a black exorcist and it's huh. called abby um there weren't any wolfman Black Wolfman movies, but there was like you know I found the trailer for the thing with two heads, which is Ray Milland, you know the actor. His head is transplanted onto the body of Rosie Greer, who's a who's a uh, a, uh, a prisoner who's volunteered for this experiment. But then, um, but Ray Milland is a racist, so when he wakes up 
and he's attached to Rosie Greer, um, comedy ensues. You know, he looks at, you know, Rosie Greer, like, whips out his junk, and, like, he's like, you know, big penis jokes. And then, like, he's having sex with his lady, and Ray Milland is, like, you know, having a confused response. And uh, I, I saw it, um, I remember seeing it as a kid, and you can say junk on, you can say junk. Um, so uh, existential <laughs> junk. <laughs> I remember seeing it at a uh, uh, a black exploitation festival at the Film Forum in New York a couple years ago, and um, this is really off topic. But they filmed a two minute uh, car chase sequence, and then literally looped it for fifteen minutes. And so you see the same <laughs> like cars jumping off from the same angle over and over again, and it just goes on forever. Like they they ran out of you know there was not much of a plot to go on with originally but a decent score <laughs> yes the score was great and then this 20 minute car chase we're just like how long like they really just didn't care it was a different time <laughs> yeah and maybe you went into the theater and with different not just popcorn who knows <laughs> well yes yes no definitely <laughs> so it was really maybe you didn't notice that it was the same some car coke. jumping you went in with some coke some classic right, coke some, some, yeah, some classic coke exactly um so well so when you were a, a kid did you like write in a journal or were you starting to sketch out comics or or what well we, i remember like we my friends and i had a um a mad magazine ripoff called cheapo but because cheapo it was called it was called cheapo <laughs> and um but we just we only did like star wars parodies and so like our it was our our dream to perfect the star wars parody and so it'd be like cheapo you know issue two you know back to star like you know star wars <laughs> what like, would be an example of a sketch that you would i can't even remember just like you know like um, something with princess leah no doubt <laughs> and her buns not even oh that you know that was yeah you know, it was like second second you know third grade and so it was all about like darth you know we, some there was, we had a, a, a kid who could draw darth vader very, it was all about what he could draw really well and so that became the basis for any joke if you couldn't draw obi-wan kenobi you wouldn't have any obi-wan kenobi jokes so it was all like darth vader heads and tie fighters like those so a lot of that with like i think thought bubbles coming out you know i'm not really sure i can't you know <laughs> right. i don't have any copies of it but well, that's a shame because yes. <laughs> that would be some. So it was sometime. So did you come to like writing more as a reader first, like finding some sort of or is it just like it actually when you were talking about the Stephen King, it sounded maybe like you were intrigued by the actual his construction because with King, you can kind of see some things that not in a bad way but what some things that are at work well i remember reading carrie in seventh grade and, and like you de deconstruct things very well like you just like how you talk about your own work and uh, yeah but well carrie. Ca carrie you know has um it's been a long time but he has like newspaper reports of like the day carrie goes crazy interspersed before the day of the prom and so like there's this um Structural element, structural element, which is reportage of this in, impending event, and we sort of get sketchy details before. And I was like, "Oh, like why is this news report here?" And like that, you know, that's sort of like, you know, oh, kind can of you do junior, that? Junior Pomo <laughs> in Carrie, and um, these sort of extra textual um, elements that he introduced. And I remember thinking, "Oh, you know, I didn't put it this way, but oh, you make there's a different effect from when you get this um, foreshadowing in this sort of sketchy foreshadowing." And that creates a different way of reading the story. So I remember, like, thinking, "Oh, it's cool that he's doing a different sort of horror story." When you when you were at the Village Voice for two years, did that give you some time to start? Because to 
to like be a writer or did you take that job because you already sort of, you know, fancied yourself a writer? <laughs> all, all those things. I mean, I took it because I, I read The Voice and loved it and I wanted to be one of these sort of like free range cultural dudes who writes about TV in the morning and Dairy Dot at night or whatever. Um, deconstruction hip deconstructing hip hop and stuff like that. Um, but I, I thought I saw myself as a fiction writer primarily, but I didn't actually write fiction. I was nothing very good at it, and I didn't actually write anything. Uh, it was journalism uh, when I was at The Voice, for like you know, five years, uh, having to produce, having to sit down for five hours, and learning how that attention span, being uh, following a deadline so that you can get paid, so you can have money to go out, and so um, I learned a lot of good habits. Also, it's a public forum, so if you write a great, great article. People are like, oh, congratulations. And a dud article, you heard nothing. So I learned, you know, what if I was being too self-indulgent, you know, not to do it next time, do more of this next time because you get more positive affirmation. So like five years, five years of doing that, I was freelance and that and the freelance lifestyle gave me enough time to do fiction. Like I wouldn't have, I couldn't, I can't write if I have a full-time job. I teach occasionally, but if I have to teach, I can't write. So I need like a whole day free uh, to get stuff done. And so do you have... Um like a first novel that's in, in, in a drawer, like what you always like the, that stereotypical, uh, drawer that's out there that we all have apparently. <laughs> yeah. It's about, it's, uh, because I didn't want to do, do something autobiographical. I decided to do something that was probably drew more from my journalism, critical work. And so it was about a, um, a Gary Coleman-esque child star who grows up and is abused by the mass, uh, by a mass media combine and um, so I wrote this thinking it was very good, and then I was surprised that a, a, you know, a book about a Gary Coleman-esque child star wouldn't find its footing in the marketplace. Um, so that... I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I was shocked. No one else was shocked. I would think the film would already be op options or whatever. <laughs> but I learned my lesson, so I started writing about elevator inspectors. And that well, maybe maybe that it's maybe it's good to yeah, it sure <laughs> did. Oh, geez, All, like listing the like so many prizes and 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 uh, accolades, but but maybe you'll unlearn that lesson because I think there should be you know a Gary Coleman esque child star novel. There is in my drawer. In your drawer. Yeah. Well, maybe there's um uh, a sequel. Yes, there could be a sequel. <laughs> Well, thanks for telling us what's in your drawer, Colson Whitehead. Yes, my pleasure. <laughs> and thanks for being here today. And uh, um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, uh, we've been lucky to have Colson Whitehead here with his book, Sag Harbor. Um, thanks for listening, Ann Arbor. Thanks for streaming. Thanks to Alex Belhodge. Um, until next time. And you look like you're the best Her name is Rio And she dances on the same
This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. It's radio, free Ann Arbor. Student-run alternative broadcasting from the University of Michigan with lots of community involvement. My name is Arwolf Arwolf, and for the next hour I'm presenting the, uh, the veritable root system of the polka tradition. This is a drive-time polka party, and we've had different people doing this all summer long. And for the summer, we've been taking up an entire 60 minutes with, with the polka format. It feels pretty good, especially if you like polkas. Johann Strauss, Jr. wrote a lot of waltzes. And he's remembered primarily for his waltzes. But he wrote a lot of polkas, quadrilles, and marches as well including orchestral and chamber music. I have gone through a sizable number of polkas, did a lot of research for this, and I've selected what I think are the most intriguing titles. They're all fun. Some of them are pretty jumpy. Others are a little more relaxed. I'd like to open with the Electromagnetic Polka, Opus 110. This dates from the year 1852, Polka time with Johann Strauss. 